one topic of endless fascination for those who want to understand the future which Revelation depicts is the topic of the individual in Scripture known as the Antichrist. The Apostle John, who wrote this text, is the only New Testament writer who uses that word, antichristos, which is one against Christ, or one in the place, or assumes the place of Christ. Others, though, call him the son of perdition, the man of sin, the lawless one. John's the only one to use that term antichrist, but only in his letters. You will search in vain to find that word in the pages of Revelation. And yet instead, as he writes about the Antichrist here in this chapter, he simply describes him through the vision of a beast. Now before we read the text, I want you to see sort of how Revelation 13 works. Just glance at at verse 1. He sees a vision of this beast rising up out of the sea. And this is just one of two beasts described in Revelation 13. If you want to glance down um, at the next text, which starts at verse 11, you'll see he says, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. That second beast, which we'll see in later weeks, is a deadly false prophet. But this beast from the sea in verses 1 through 10 is the Antichrist. So let's read this text. Revelation 13, starting at verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I Saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. The message this morning is about the coming Antichrist. And while I 
I, I don't want us to ignore what Scripture has to tell us about this individual. I also want to try to use some pastoral care in making sure that our focus is in the right place. Our preoccupation tends to be, well, who is this man? When is he going to come? How is this going to happen? And, and the word here does give us some answers to some of those questions, but not just for the purpose of satiating our curiosity. There's a greater lesson here. And so let me just give you this lesson before we get started. Ready? Only a heart drawn to the admiration and worship of Christ will resist being drawn to the admiration and worship of the Antichrist. I have confidence that's the message of the text as John sort of unveils the future because in Matthew 24, as Jesus unveils the future, he says the same thing. In Revelation 13 here, John describes the Antichrist and we've seen later a false prophet who draws the world's worship. But listen to what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 24. He says, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible they shall deceive the very elect even the very elect the chosen of God from the foundation of the world to trust in Jesus as savior even those very elect would be deceived if that was possible but praise God by the indwelling holy spirit that's not possible and so what we'll learn in this text we'll see a lot about the antichrist we'll see how he comes and how he's received and what he says and what he does but by the time we get down to verses 8 through 10 john will also explain to us why this matters through all that let's keep the perspective of the greater lesson of both john and jesus that only a heart drawn to the admiration and worship of Christ will resist being drawn to the admiration and worship of Antichrist. So let's see how he comes. Verses 1 through 3. I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded unto death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. John's vision begins with him standing on the beach, and watching as out of the chaotic abyss of the churning waves, this beast rises up out of the water and sort of lumbers ashore. And immediately, I think this should remind us of the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes this vision, the beginning of this vision in which he describes the, the winds cause the sea to churn and, and the four beasts. So that word just means animals or or creatures, four beasts rise up out of the water. And in Daniel's vision, 
If you recall, the first was like a lion, and the second like a bear, and the third was like a leopard, and the fourth was unlike anything else. He described it as dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. Now Daniel was seeing a vision that was far future to him. John, many, many centuries later, has been sort of caught up in time and moved forward and is looking back. Or think of it this way, if I walked towards you and said, I just passed a, a lion and then a bear and then a leopard, and you started walking that direction, what would you expect to see? I know, you wouldn't walk that direction if I told you that. But if you did, what would you expect to see? Well, you would expect to see the same thing in reverse order of as what I saw them, Right? Well, look at verse 2. John sees this beast, and in the description of the beast, he says, well, this beast was, was like a leopard, and his feet were like a bear, and, and his mouth like a lion, right? He's giving these animals in, in reverse order of what Daniel saw them rising up out of the sea. The similarities between John's vision and Daniel's vision aren't just coincidence, By the end of Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, it's evident he's seeing the Antichrist. Daniel 7.21, he sees him, quote, making war against the saints and prevailing against them. And John sees the same thing. He'll use the same terminology down in verse 7 where he says the beast makes war against the saints and overcomes them. I actually think Daniel's vision is a Helpful key to making sense of this coming Antichrist. Each of those creatures that Daniel saw in his vision in Daniel 7, rising up out of the sort of the the chaotic sea, were representing nations. Nations that would rise up one after another. John, in his vision here in, in chapter 13, sees this dreadful beast rising up out of the sea, and it is only one creature but it has many of the aspects of the things in Daniel's vision because every nation that has ever established itself on this globe every nation that now stands or will stand is taking a step closer to fulfilling the goal of Satan to establish a ruler over the world and therefore every nation in history present or in the future or in the past is designed to crumble before the kingdom of Christ at his coming. What becomes evident of this world leader is that his great power derives from Satan. We saw in in Revelation 12 that, that Satan is seen in John's vision in Revelation 12, if you remember, as a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Now this beast from the sea in verse 1 has seven heads and ten horns imitating Satan, sort of the power behind the throne. In fact, verse 2 even explicitly states that the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. The motivating factor, the motivating force behind the Antichrist's rise is Satan himself. I, I have little doubt that Satan has been at work behind many world leaders and nations throughout history from Alexander the Great to the Roman emperors to Hitler as as each of them has attempted to sort of establish authority over the world. The difference is when this world leader comes, he's actually going to succeed. 
And all of this is a satanic counterfeit. It seems likely that this wicked imitation will even include what appears to be a death and resurrection. Look at verse 3. I saw one of his heads as it was wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. I, I heard one preacher try to convince everyone that the Antichrist was the Russian leader Mikhail Gorbachev because you remember that birthmark he had on his bald head? You know? But that's not a deadly wound. And for that matter, I hope you're not expecting me to start naming you and telling you what, who, who the Antichrist is. Every time I've ever heard someone do that, they've come off sounding dumb and it's even gotten dumber over time since they've done it. I'm pretty sure it was in this pulpit many years ago I heard a preacher say the Antichrist was the, for sure it was the former Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, because you add up the letters of Henry Kissinger's name and it adds up to 666, except I did the math, and it doesn't, and he's not. What verse 3 is picturing, it seems, is an apparent death and resurrection to life of this political leader who will be the Antichrist. He truly will be an imitation Christ, and the world will be amazed by it, right? They all wondered at the beast, it says in verse 3. This deadly wound to his head, according to verse 14, when we get down to next week's text, when we get down to verse 14, we'll find it's a wound by a sword. That is, it is some sort of violence inflicted on this individual. What I can't say with certainty is whether his, his death is actual death or just near death or, or whether all of it is just a, a fabrication that people believe. The sort of deception that surrounds this individual makes it difficult to be sure. Listen to what Paul says of the Antichrist is in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-12, through 12, as he calls him the lawless one. Paul says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the work of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception, among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul says when the Antichrist comes through Satan's working, it's with power and, and signs, literally the word for miracles and lying wonders, and the world buys it because the world is deluded. They love and receive him because they have refused to love and receive the Lord Jesus and be saved. So this is how he comes, and look at how he's received. When the world embraces this wicked world leader, it's not just a matter of them unwittingly and unwisely joining his you know, political fan club. Verse 4 says, They worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? The world's wonder in verse 3 gives birth to the world's worship in verse 4. 
We know from other New Testament writings about the Antichrist that he's going to demand worship. And by the end of this chapter, in verse 14, the false prophet promotes this cause, insisting an idol gets made in the Antichrist's honor. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Personally, I, th- I think this explains what it means up in verse 1 when it says the beast has on his heads the name of blasphemy. He assumes divine titles. He proclaims himself to be God. And what becomes evident through this chapter is that the world isn't forced into worship. It willingly embraces the worship of the Antichrist. And thereby, the worship of Satan as well. Verse 4 says they didn't only worship the beast, but also the dragon which gave power to the beast. Listen, there is no one like God, and there is no one who can thwart God's purpose. But the worship of this Antichrist, as he proclaims himself, is he proclaims himself to be supreme in all things. So that instead of saying there's no one like God and there's no one who can stop God's purposes, the world in verse 4 is saying, who is like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? This adoration is not imposed upon the world. It seems to be volunteered. When this wicked individual comes, listen, (laughs) he's going to be appealing He's not literally going to look like a seven-headed, ten-horned monster. He's going to be boastful, and he's going to be arrogant, and in the process, he's going to be persuasive. He's going to be appealing to human hearts. And if your heart is not fully set on Christ himself, if your heart is just like the hearts of the rest of the world, you can fully expect to be swept up in the adoration and worship of this monstrous man. So you've seen how he comes and how he's received. Look at what he says, verses 5 and 6. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power given unto him to continue 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his temple and them that dwell in heaven. You'll notice there is a single word used three times in verses, four, uh, in verses 5 and 6. It's that word blasphemy. It's a word that means slander or profane speech, but specifically slander toward God or profane speech towards his righteousness. This, isn't, this is going to be more than just something he happens to do. This is going to be a major part of his purpose. That little phrase in verse 6, actually, when it says, he opened his mouth, you'll find that's a phrase. That's actually a term that's used in the Gospels and in the book of Acts for Jesus and his disciples when they began to preach, when they began to 
preach a sermon, it would say, well, they opened their mouths and said, and they preached a whole sermon. This is not that he opened his mouth and happened to have a bad word come out, right? This is he is opening his mouth and he's, he's sermonizing, giving speeches to slander God. Not just to slander God, but also the name and reputation of God, the worship of God, the people of God. This is also what Daniel saw in Daniel 7, verses 8 and 20. It describes a mouth speaking very great things. In Daniel 7, verse 11, he is shocked at the sound of pompous words which the Antichrist is speaking. In Daniel 11, verse 36, he says he will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and will speak blasphemous things against the god of gods. Or as Paul says, he exalts himself to show that he is God. This is going to continue. The end of verse 5 says for 42 months. There's no, there's no uniform understanding of whether this is the first half of the tribulation or the second half of the tribulation. It's three and a half years. It's one half. I tend to see it as the Antichrist will make a, a peace treaty, spend three and a half years blaspheming God's person and God's place and God's people. And then in the middle of the tribulation, he breaks that treaty and begins a violent war. But what we do know is certain is that this time is set by God. Satan and his Antichrist are on the clock and and he knows it. Back in Revelation 12, verse 11, we, we saw that the devil knows that he has only a short time. And perhaps because of that knowledge, the, the shocking revelation of this Antichrist goes beyond just what he says and moves forward to what he does. Because if all the coming wicked Antichrist will do is blaspheme and accept the world's worship, that would be bad enough. But that would be all talk, right? Right? He's going to do more than that. His, his hateful speeches against the person of God and the place of God and the people of God is going to be matched by violent actions toward them as well. Verse 7, it will be given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Okay, let me just insert here. I'm not, I, honestly, I'm not trying to find proof of a post-tribulation rapture in everything I read. But this sort of leads to that conclusion as well. When you read that term, with the saints, what does that mean to you? Do you think of the saints as people who were Jewish by birth, or do you think of the saints as believers in Jesus? Or when you read John's continual use of the term at the end of verse 7, all kindreds and tongues and nations, how does he usually use that? Right? It's a description of Christ's saints, believers from every kindred and tongue and nation. They're, they're here at this time. So when the Antichrist makes war against the saints, he also has power over them, all over all kindreds and tongues and nations. He, he makes war with the saints to overcome them. 
It certainly seems he's specifically making war against the, the people of God, believers, believing saints who are here during the tribulation. In verse 7, he says he has the power, it says he has the power to overcome them. He's going to succeed. Now, he doesn't have the ability to overcome their faith, right? Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. But Jesus has secured our victory through his blood that was shed at the cross and his resurrection from the grave. But the Antichrist working in Satan's power is going to have authority in physical terms to overcome the saints, Again, from Daniel, Daniel 7.25, he speaks of this blasphemy followed by violence. He says back there, he will speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out, wear down, violently oppress the saints of the Most High. Although we know that this isn't ultimate victory because ultimate victory belongs to the saints through Christ. Neither death nor sword nor persecution or sorrow can separate the disciples of Jesus from his love and the reward promised to them. But this wicked man is going to make war against righteousness and he's going to succeed at it. Okay, so we've seen how he comes and how he's received, what he says, what he does. But I told you at the beginning, we need to concentrate on why this matters. John does not leave us sort of wondering for a point to all this. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the Antichrist. There's there's no way that John sort of describes the Antichrist just to leave visions of seven-headed, ten-horned monsters dancing in our heads. Here's why it matters. Verses 8 through 10. All that dwell on the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience of and the faith of the saints. Let's talk about this term book of life for a moment. It's used throughout Revelation, and actually once by Paul in Philippians chapter 4 to describe sort of a divine registry. But this isn't, this isn't a registry like you show up at a wedding or at a you know, funeral visitation and you sign yourself into a book. The book of life isn't an empty volume full of blank paper waiting for you to sort of get in the queue and put your name in it. The book of life is the document that God himself assigned the names of people whom he had chosen to save. John's description is this is the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is a pre-creation document. It was filled at that time with the names of not yet created people who would be saved by the shed blood of Jesus, who is the lamb slain. He he is the one with that purpose from before the foundation of the world. When we get to Revelation 20, we'll see that this book of life is opened and people are judged through it and 
all those who are not written in it are cast into the lake of fire. And in Revelation 21, all those whose names are in the book of life will be admitted to the Lord's presence. Y'all, when you, when you read Revelation and we get preoccupied with this individual, why would it matter when is Antichrist going to come or who will Antichrist be if whoever he is and whenever he comes, you're just going to fall in line and worship him? Oh, I would never. <laughs> really? What do you think is going to stop you? Do you think it's your own force of will, your own discerning wisdom that's somehow greater than the rest of the world that's going to keep you from falling for his persuasiveness or admiring his appeal? Verse 8 says, all that dwell on the earth will worship him. All those whose names are not written in the book of life and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Or if you remember the words of Jesus earlier, if it was possible... He would deceive even the very elect. What would stop you? Knowing that, what is the determining factor of whether or not you worship Antichrist? Well, isn't John trying to show us, look, it's, it's a matter of faith in Jesus as Savior, that he died for you, that he's secured your place in that registry of God's saints and and safeguards your heart so that no matter what the persuasion and the appeal of the Antichrist, you are so consumed for the love of Christ that you will not be satisfied with a counterfeit Christ. Can you see how this is where John draws our attention? You know, while there are a lot of answers given about, you know, the person of the Antichrist, it's here that John, when he gets to this, why this matters... He stresses in verse 9, if you have an ear, then hear. The way we'd say it today is, look, are you listening to this? Everyone who dwells on the earth will worship him except those who are written in the book of life. It's not possible. They're secured by the blood of the lamb and they won't be fooled by those lies or enticed by that charisma. Now, verse 10 is notoriously complicated. Let me, it's important though. So let me give you two possible meanings to verse 10 and talk about them. Look at verse 10. The beginning says, He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity, and he that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. This could be a warning against the unrighteous, right? If you lead people captive, then you're going to be taken captive. If you kill, you are going to be killed. And if that's what John means, it echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 26, 52, when he says that all those that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And so it would be undeniably true you live that way, be warned, you're going to face the consequences for that life. That being said, I don't think that's what John intends in verse 10. Instead of being a warning against the unrighteous, I think this is an encouragement for the saints to be steadfast in the face of the persecution that Antichrist brings. 
John's saying if you live to see this day and God's design for your life is to be led captive, go be a captive. If it's will for your life that you be killed, endure it. Now that doesn't sound like encouragement, right? But it echoes the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15 too, where he says, those destined to death should go to death. Those to famine, go to famine. Those to captivity, go to captivity. Essentially, the message would be, right, only those who are not written in the book of the life, uh, in the book of life, will worship the Antichrist. So if that's you, if you're here and you're faced with this, well, you worship or you're going to be a slave. <laughs> be a slave. You worship him or it's the sword for you. Take the sword. How could you possibly do that? Well, John says at the end of verse 10, here is, or, little, or really, this calls for the patience and the faith of the saints. The idea of patience is steadfastness. It is this moment when counterfeit Christians will be exposed. When the moment comes where you are called to either lose everything or deny the Lord Jesus, then lose everything. In the words of missionary Jim Elliott, who was killed for preaching the gospel, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We could use this reminder in a lot of situations today. It is not comfort or safety that we're called to. It is faithfulness that we're called to. If you love the Lord Jesus, you know he's worth it. And so again, the, the lesson of the text, only a heart drawn to the admiration and worship of Christ will resist being drawn to the admiration and worship of the Antichrist.